Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 99th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial planning and financial markets. So, good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Uh, as always, we'll take the first few minutes here to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on May 25th. Uh, this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 0.17% for the month and up 11.5% for the year. The Dow up 1.3% in May and up 12.1% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 2.15% for the month and up 6% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index is down 2.5% for the month and up 11.8% for the year. Vanguard International ETF X United States up 2.35% for the month and up 9.65% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.02%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 1.56%. Um, so some headlines to dig into this week, Matt. Job openings uh, have reached an all-time high, and that's, you know, ever. Ever. Uh, last week, um, the figures came in at 8.1 million job openings. Um, and with 9.8 million people still unemployed, there's a big debate going on about whether the additional federal unemployment benefits of 300 per week um, are acting as a disincentive for people to join the workforce. So you're already seeing states start to prematurely and the extra state aid. That's correct, Mark. I've heard that. And I know that um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce argued last week as well to call an end for that that program as well. And you just drive around town in any in any city in the U.S. And what are you going to see signs for? Yeah. Need help, need help. You know, and what's going to be interesting is these 17 states that are ending this program early, roughly at the end of June, you're just going to see a, a mad rush to kind of fight for these jobs right you know um yeah it's just crazy how much a little more you know than a year difference makes because last year this time you know people were laying off people like crazy and it's just it's just insane to me to see how quickly that turned and now people are begging for people to come to work absolutely i mean the consumer in my opinion the consumer is getting back out there spending money I shared with you, I was at a, a local amusement park here in Ohio. I was at Kings Island on Saturday. Never seen it that busy in my life. Waited 40 minutes just for ice cream. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Digest that. Yeah. And like you said, there's 17 states so far that have announced plans to discontinue the extra benefits, um, you know, in an attempt to encourage people to return to the workforce. So expect that list to grow over the next couple of weeks. Um, more positive news in terms of COVID. Uh, COVID cases continue to drop in the U.S. and new COVID-19 cases are now down 87% from their peak in January in the U.S. at their lowest levels since last June. 
Um, the number or the excuse me, the percent of positive tests is down to 2.7%, which is the lowest level of the pandemic. Um, That's a great stat right there. Yeah. And I was I saw something on Twitter the other day that someone said it were no longer labeled as in the pandemic. I know that we've been bet me and you just off off air have been back and forth on like the definition of the of a pandemic and well, what's the that is threshold. Is they, they, they keep moving the, the goalpost on it. Right. Right. So there, there are some people, though, that, you know, that say the pandemic is over. Some people say it's not. But, you know, it's just a matter of words at this point, I think. Yeah. So it's all semantics at this point. Yeah. And the problem is, is politics are involved, which makes it um, very unclear. Yeah. And even That's more to say challenging it. to challenging. understand. Uh, and the last piece of data in terms of headlines is uh, gas prices are now back above $3 a gallon nationwide at their highest levels seen since 2014. So, you know, I guess my thing with this, Matt, is that everyone's acting so surprised about all this stuff, but it all kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you know, you have people with a lot more money than they had the last couple of years. Um, supply chains are tight and prices are going up, right? Supply and demand, baby. Um, there's a, a shortage of semiconductors right now, which means that there's, you know, all these car manufacturers aren't pumping up, pumping out enough cars to meet the demand. So prices are going up. So that's why you're seeing, you know, Used car, car prices. Used car prices going up. Double digits year over um, year. The same thing with, with airline tickets. You know, there's a lot of people that want to go and travel, and airlines are trying to get back online to get full full capacity, and, you know, prices are going up. It's the same thing with, with oil prices. People are traveling. There's more demand for gas, and there's more demand for jet fuel. Absolutely. So prices are going up. I, Absolutely. I just think people need to understand how this stuff works. And you saw gas come down during the pandemic because no one was traveling. So again, that makes sense. So if you just stop and think about this stuff rather than just, you know, get all up in arms about the headlines, like we were talking about last week, people were blaming Biden for higher oil prices. He's got like, it's, to not, do with it. it's not how this stuff works. So, you know, when we see these inflation numbers come out, I just don't want people to be surprised because this all makes sense to me. I would absolutely agree. I mean, I was um, at home last night. Uh, my wife yelled to me because she's going on a girl's trip this summer. And she yelled to me. She's like, can you believe the price of these tickets? And then she yelled to me the number. And I'm like, that's actually not bad. She's like, what? <laughs> because, yeah. you know, again, there's only so many planes that they can fly this summer right. as they're trying to get them from mothballs, get them back in the fleet, get the people retrained and recertified. All that takes time. And so what do you have? Limited seats, and they know they can get the prices for them. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's across the board. Yeah. Hotels, you're going to see prices go up at restaurants. They can Airbnbs, get it. Airbnbs, VRBOs. Airbnbs, they're going to get it. They can get it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, ultimately... People are going to have to make a decision because I think this these inflated prices for travel could be here for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, a, it's the same thing with like lumber prices. It's like over the pandemic, everyone was doing renovations to their home. It's like, what do you expect if there's more people and doing that chain stuff? And the supply chain was strained because yeah. of COVID. Yeah, what do you expect? So this, I mean, none of this is surprising to me or should shock anybody because that's just how this works. And what's interesting is I think lumber was one of the first commodities per se 
where the price got too expensive and people started pulling back on projects. Yeah. And I, I saw that firsthand with our client base where clients mm -hmm. would be like, I'm holding off on this basement uh, renovation, et cetera, because of the prices of the raw commodities. So it's interesting that there is a price stuff will get to and people will say no. Right. Yeah. It's just one of those things where the, the pendulum swings way too far one way and it's going to have to come back eventually. That's right. Because as prices go up, you're going to have new competition or new supply hit the market. And then what does it do to prices? You know, so what they always kind of say is what's the cure for high oil prices? High oil prices. Right. And this is more of a specialty probably for Nick, but that's what they usually would say. Yeah. And so I think that's that's, that's a, applicable in other commodities. Yeah, I agree. And then one other thing, just to point, you know, point to, you know, what's going on with inflation and prices right now. Um, we have family friends that are, are building a new house in Naples, Florida, and the person across the street from them built their house for one point five million. He lived in that house for one month and sold it for $3.1 million. Oh, my gosh. That is not sustainable, Mark. Isn't that, that is not sustainable. Crazy. It's not sustainable. Yeah. I had a client tell me in town that they bought their home about three, four years ago in a suburb of Dayton. And it has someone has offered double for it just recently in Sanity. Yeah, it's crazy. Not and I, sustainable. And I was I was listening to another podcast with uh, Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson this morning. They said there was a story where the buyer of a house was wanted the house so bad that they bought that house and they also bought the house for the seller that they were buying the house from. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> it's insane right now. It's absolutely insane. It's just interesting. It's interesting to see all of these things go on behind the scenes. So, you know, this is going on everywhere right now. It's not just limited to certain pockets of the country, I don't think. It's not. Um, so we'll leave it there with headlines and, and news from the week. And I'll let you kick us off here with tweets, articles, and research that caught our eyes. All right, let's dig in. First one I got for the listeners, Mark, is... Um, a tweet I saw from JC Peretz. We're big fans of JC. Uh, this is an update on active managers exposure to the US equity markets. So let me give a little bit of a preview because we do have this chart on our show notes. So Mark, why don't you remind listeners where they could find this chart? Yeah, so follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, and you can see all these charts that we're talking about on all of our social media. Uh, and, and Jenna notes. on our team usually posts these the day before, yeah. usually. So the average exposure to U.S. equity markets and equity is a fancy word for stocks. So the average exposure to U.S. stock exposure for active managers breaks to a new 52 week low for the National Association of Active Managers. The exposure index that they that's a proprietary index they have represents the amount of stock that these active managers have within their portfolios. Right. So you can either be, you know, this is they, they survey these, these active managers, these group of active uh, stock managers every single week. And you can either be 100 percent long, um, leveraged long. So like two times long, uh, you know, 50, 50 you know, 100% short, so on and so forth. And, you know, we're seeing 
people were almost 100% long as of a week or two ago, and now it's come back down to only being 40% long. Absolutely. And it's kind of at, you know, again, it's at a, it's at a one-year low point. And what does that mean? Why is this relevant to listeners? What it says to me is, A, there's dry powder on the sidelines, right? Usually money does not sit on the sidelines long, has to find a home. And that's good for the upcoming, I think, supply demand metrics for stocks. That's the first point. Second point I want to make is the contrarian in me likes the fact that sellers have sold. So when we're at a low point, in my opinion, in this index, it means everyone who wanted to sell, quote unquote, has sold. And so that's going to be another driving factor. So in my opinion, this is a, a nice little one data point that says to me, you're probably going to have some fresh capital coming back into the market. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think we also have to be open to the fact that this can go from, you know, 40% of these people being uh, or, or being 40% into equities, you know, that could go lower. too. Absolutely. So it's in no means calling the bottom and, you know, the market's going to rip higher from here. Nope, but I would agree. Like, you, like you said, you know, when you have a change from people being 100% and stock exposure, and that drops down to 40%. That's a pretty big change. It is. It is. And again, I would agree with 100% with what you said. It could always go lower. Mm -hmm. All right. Another update I have, Mark, is on dividends. Okay. This piece of research is from Argus Research on May 17th. This piece is also attached to our show notes on all of our social media. A couple tidbits I want to share here. First, since 1970, the dividends of companies that comprise the S&P 500 index have grown at 2.1% per year, and that's essentially in line with longer-term GDP growth, okay? So what does that mean? If you have a company that pays a dividend, statistically speaking, they'll raise that dividend that they pay to shareholders by 2% a year. That's the statistic. So let's get down to brass tacks. Explain to listeners, Mark, what a dividend actually is. Yeah, so it's uh, a piece of the profits that companies have shareholders participate in, essentially. So it's sharing profits with the shareholders of certain stocks and certain companies. Um, companies are not obligated to pay a dividend. Um, but, you know, it is attractive for people that are seeking income in terms of, you know, just where interest rates are today. You can't really get much from bonds. So people are turning to high paying dividend uh, or excuse me, uh, dividend paying companies to kind of get that fixed income, if you will. Absolutely. And prototypically in the past, a company that doesn't pay a dividend is reinvesting all of that revenue and earnings into growing the company. Correct. Yeah. Right? So typically companies that aren't paying dividends are growing quicker than companies who are, um, you know, who are paying dividends. Thank you for sharing that. So um, I wanted to kind of throw this out there that um, there has been five years in the past 50 where the dividend growth rate year over year has been above 10%. I found that interesting. So let's now make this relatable. In 2019, Mark, average dividends for the S&P 500 grew by 9%. Pretty substantial. Now, in the year of COVID of 2020, they grew by 1%, which was below that longer term average of 2.1. The reason I'm bringing this up, Argus is saying that at this stage of the economic and market cycle, they're recommending that uh, people look at 
companies that are going to be raising this dividend because statistically speaking, they're flush with cash. A lot of companies in the S&P 500 are. And you could see a lot of dividend raises as the year goes on, and especially as we start to pull out of the pandemic. And so that could be bullish for shareholders as these companies start releasing more of that money. You could see dividend raises, stock buybacks, and historically, that's very positive. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that you can too, because you had, you know, not all companies, but there are a lot of companies that cut their dividend in 2020 because of fears of COVID and just being conservative with their, you know, their, um, their budgets. But now I think it's one of those things, again, where the pendulum went too far one way and, you know, companies are realizing, hey, we're actually okay. People are still sp spending money and buying our product and buying our services. So I think it's going to swing way back the other way and people are going to be raising their dividends at a pretty high clip the next couple of years. The other comment I think we should share with listeners, Mark, is the frequency of payment. You know, a lot of these companies will pay their dividend on a quarterly basis. So mm -hmm. once every three months, it's another factor to throw out there. Yeah. Okay, um, I got another one for you. I have a performance update on growth or value. This is a piece from Bespoke Investment Research on May 17th. Um, before I continue, and again, I'm going to keep using the term brass tacks. When's the last time you used the term brass tacks in your terminology? It's okay. been a while. What bringing movie it back, is that baby. from? I'm bringing it back. There's, it's from a movie. Is it? I'm going well, to look at Nick or Jenny. You guys know what this, this term is from? Have you heard this term before? Nick, they're both saying yes. Something. Okay, I'm bringing it back, baby. So let's get down to brass tacks. Will you share with listeners the definition of growth and value very loosely so they understand uh, the premise of what I'm about to speak about? Yeah, and I, I just go back to this, that there's so many different ways to define growth and value. But I mean, the, the nuts and bolts, I guess, of it is, you know, Growth stocks are companies that are growing, you know, earnings and revenue above the average, and value stocks are growing revenue and earnings below the average. Yeah, so and you I think, think the S&P average above and below that per se. Right, exactly. Very loosely. Right, and you know, value is also companies that are, you know, have a cheap valuation. If you want to, you know, say PE ratio, price to sales ratio, you know, enterprise value. There's so many different ways to 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 quantify that. And traditionally, they have a lower valuation because they're not growing as fast. Right. Just traditionally, right? right? So this piece of research, again, this is posted to our show notes and all of our social media sites. Um, Bespoke says it's been quite a run for value stocks. Over the last six months, Mark, the S&P 500 value index has rallied more than 22%, while its growth counterpart has rallied half of that, or about 11.7% during that same span. So the chart that we show on our social media, it shows that the rolling six-month performance gap or difference between the S&P 500 value and growth indices, it goes back to the mid-1990s on this chart, Mark. At last week's high, the spread was 17.5%, and that is the widest it's been since June of 2001. So again, the performance spread is currently very extreme now. And I'm just curious, with you being, of course, our firm's chief investment officer, wanted to get some unfiltered thoughts for the listeners on this. Yeah, I, and like I said, you know, a few minutes ago, I really don't like 
like the comparison, I guess, of, of growth to value, just because, like I said, there's so many different ways to quantify that. There's so many different metrics to say, is this a growth stock or is this a value stock? Now, to prove that point, if you look at like a prototypical large cap growth or large cap value fund by a rating service such as Morningstar, you're going to find holdings in that fund that are the opposite of the exactly, prospectus. Exactly, exactly. So you're going to you're going to have one growth fund. Uh, that has you know stock XYZ, and then you're going to have like a value fund that that stock's going to be in that fund They're in the as top well. ten of both of them, right? So How is that like, possible? Yeah, right, right. So I think I think the the main theme here is for people not to get caught up in the whole growth value conversation, but you know people are, have to understand that you're going to go through periods of time where you know quote unquote growth stocks are going to outperform quote unquote value stocks and vice versa. And we're going through a time where, you know, the value stocks, the value sectors, financials, industrials, materials, energies are outperforming tech discretionary communications. And that's going to happen, you know, all the time. I'm still in the in the camp that we're in a very early stage of this digital transformation in our economy that, you know, over the long run, you know, tech discretionary communications is going to outperform. But that doesn't mean over the short term. You're, you have these more value oriented sectors, you know, take the baton and lead for a little while, because let's, you know, talk about what's not healthy for the market. It's not healthy for any one sector to lead the market for five years in a row. Yep. That's just not sustainable. And you saw that with the tech bubble in the early 2000s. That's not healthy. If you look at tech and discretionary now, it's been, you know, eight, nine months that they've underperformed the market Good point. and they've taken a breather. In my opinion, that's healthy. That's healthy. The rotation is healthy. That's very, very healthy. So, you know, again, getting back to, to your question, I think people get too in the weeds with, with you know, growth versus value conversation. Um, you know, it's good to have a little bit of both, in my opinion, and I don't think people should be afraid of that. I have nothing to add. Yeah. Perfect. Last thing I got for listeners, Mark, is a tweet by the Irrational Investor. He is a, a trader I follow on Twitter, and I'm going to read it to you, and I just want to see what you have to say. It's very short. The willingness to appear foolish in the short term gives you a great advantage. True for life, true for investing. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, we, we talk all the time about how you know, short term people are and, you know, people want this instant gratification today. But, um, you know, it takes time to build wealth and to build anything, really. Right. Yeah. The problem is like that you hear in the media, these get rich quick, I'm not saying schemes or mm -hmm. times when it happens and then they perpetuate a narrative that it's happening all over the place. Right. And it's not. No, it's not. It's not. And I think, you know, People just have to understand that it's okay, you know, for things to take time to build up. You know, that's how, you know, that's how civilization came to, to be about, right? That's how this country came to be about. It didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort, you know. So I don't think people should get discouraged that, you know, if they're investing or trading or doing financial planning stuff, if they're not seeing results right away, it's okay to, 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 you know, learn that being, you know, long-term focused is usually the way to go because I think it's the easiest for people because emotionally and physically, because you can drive yourself crazy 
if you know you're day trading for example and your profits are up you know 50 percent one day and down 60 percent the next day you know i just think emotionally it's easier if people focus on the long term and what they can control and most of the time it's not the stock market um and consistency is key yeah exactly exactly because if you're if you're changing your strategy every time it doesn't work then you're never gonna win yeah you're gonna be spinning in circles yeah so that's good back to you mark so the only thing I have from last week was a blog post written by Charlie Bellello on compoundadvisors.com titled The Most Important Rule in Investing. And do you know I'm going with this? Do you know what everyone coins the most important rule in investing? Compound interest? Nope. Time in the market? Nope. It's from Warren Buffett. Oh, geez. <laughs> What is it? Are you, by the way, I just want to ask a question. Are you a Buffett hater? I think he gets way too much credit. I'm just saying the the, the guy's 90. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. I, I, he he accrued most of his wealth in the final 20 years of his life, i.e. compounding. Right. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I think he's way over quoted. I, I just, I was just curious. I, I just, I just again, if, if I put on paper and I don't associate his name with his moves in the last decade, besides Apple and maybe Precision Cast Parts, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to throw that out okay. there. And uh, the guy's an absolute th- savage. Everyone thinks he's a teddy bear and he's not. The guy's an absolute savage. I do agree with that. I do agree. He's with not that. a teddy bear. Um, and, and Charlie's talking about his rule that he said, rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. Never lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Right. I love that. And, uh, and Charlie says, with all due respect to Warren Buffett, the most important rule in investing is not anything close to never lose money. In fact, the entire notion is absurd. And I kind of love that he's going against the majority here, um, because like you said, everyone worships the ground that Warren walks on. Um, but I agree with him. Um, and Inequities he, contain risk. And if you're not willing to take a risk, you won't be in the market. Hence, you won't get the return. Right. And, and he says anyone who has ever invested in the history of the world has lost money at one time or another. Buffett himself lost over 50% from late 2007 to early 2009 and over 45% from mid-1998 to early 2000. Being in a drawdown is the norm, not the exception, and it is the price you pay in exchange for a higher long-term rate of return than bonds or cash. So what is the number rule in investing? That's an impossible question, but if I had to pick just one, it would be the famous line from Peter Lynch, Know what you own and why you own it. For those, for if you don't get that right, you won't hold any investment long enough to reap the enormous benefits of compounding. And I think that there's a big misconception these days, Matt, of of why we own stocks, bonds, and and other assets. And I'm not talking about, you know, the specific companies that you own in a mutual fund that you hold. I'm talking about the asset classes. Why do we own stocks? Why do we own bonds? And Charlie kind of gets into this a little bit. I like bit. that. Um, So we start with why we own stocks. Investors own stocks to participate in the growth and ingenuity ingenuity of human beings and enterprises over time. 
In doing so, they hope to outpace inflation and earn higher return. Makes sense, but what exactly does that last part mean? Higher than what? How much higher? And why are they giving you this high return? Over long periods of time, stocks have delivered a higher return than bonds, 4.5% higher per year. And you were able to earn this return because you were being compensated for higher volatility and higher drawdowns due to economic uncertainty and long run growth risk. This is nothing new. We've talked about this before, right? Yep. And you're also, you know, lower down on the on the structure of debt, right? So right. all that gets compensated for the return right. on so, a longer term basis. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? What happens if a company goes bankrupt? Who gets paid out first? All right. It's a great question. So there is a priority order of who gets paid first. Traditionally, it's going to be the bondholders first. I'm talking very big picture. Mm-hmm. So the bondholders first. And trust me, there's subcategories within that. Next would be the preferred stock. So preferred stock would be next. Last are the stockholders. So they're taking the most risk, the stockholders. Hence, over the long term, they should get the biggest reward. Right. Just goes back to that simple notion of higher risk, higher return over the long run. Yep. Right. So Charlie says that showing that stocks have earned a higher return with higher volatility over long periods of time is the easy part. The hard part is explaining to investors that they are by no means guaranteed this higher return, particularly over shorter periods of time. And last week, Matt, on episode 98, we discussed how lumpy stocks returns can be, you know, up 25 percent one year, down nine percent the next year, so on. Yeah. How many fall into that eight to 12 percent range? Not a lot. Not a lot. And by shorter periods of time, Charlie says he means even as long as 10 years. 10 years, you say, but that's an eternity. Indeed, but from April 2000 through March 2010, stocks declined 6% while bonds gained 84%. Right? Um, He says if an investor is not equipped to handle a large drawdown mentally, emotionally, or financially, they cannot put all of their money in stocks, which brings us to the next topic, which is why we own bonds. And I think this is one of those things, Matt, that a lot of people think they can handle the volatility of being in 100% stock portfolio until stocks cut in half by 50%. Absolutely. I think a lot of people think it's easier to go through a period of time like that than it really is. And I think people figured that out pretty quickly in March of 2020. Absolutely. And in those microcosm events, it feels like it's going to get perpetuated. It's going to be like that for an extended period of time. And that's why people tend to make poor short-term decisions. Right. You know, because of the feeling is this is going to continue. Yeah. Um, so we so we move on now to why we own bonds. So he says, if stocks never went down, there would be little need to own anything else. But as we know, they do go down from time to time. Since 1976, there have been eight calendar years in which stocks have finished lower. In each of these years, bonds finished higher, cushioning the blow. So, and when we're talking about stocks and bonds, Matt, the stocks, he's using the S&P 500. Bonds, he's using the Barclays uh, Aggregate Bond Index. Okay. Okay. A position in bonds allows investors to better withstand stock market declines and to hopefully rebalance back into equities at lower prices and valuations. So, you know, we just had this conversation with a client, Matt, in that, you know, back 20 years ago, fixed income was 
truly fixed income, right? You know, the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond was paying close to 7% per year at, you know, what people deem the risk-free rate of return. Now we're in a completely different environment where that's not the purpose of bonds anymore. Correct. The purpose of bonds is to cushion volatility in the event of stocks falling and having ample liquidity to be able to rebalance into stocks when that happens. I I truly believe that is the point of bonds and fixed income right now. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I, I, I disagree with your point. The other point I want to make is um, I'm going to make a statement and I want you to tell me if you agree or disagree. You ready? Is there direct correlation within the stock world that the higher the volatility in a stock name would equal the potential for a higher rate of return? True or false in your mind? The higher the volatility, the higher potential for stock returns. Yeah, I, I think that that's true, but there's the potential for higher returns and more extreme returns to the downside. Exactly. And so the point, the reason I'm bringing that up specifically is we have to remember that being in stocks at times is going to feel uncomfortable. And if you are putting your, your, your assets or part of your money in higher volatile names, that's going to mean more volatility Hence, it has the potential for higher returns than, say, a conservative utility stock. Right. Right. And I think that people would be pretty steady, Eddie. Yeah. People need to get their arms around that, because remember, listeners, if there wasn't volatility, the returns on equities would be drastically lower. Mm -hmm. So why are the why are longer term returns on stocks so good in comparison to bonds? It's because you got to have. Hands of steel, diamond hands. You got to hold on to that stuff in volatile times. Mm -hmm. And people sometimes don't. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates opportunity for others. Right. You know, they say in bear markets, stocks go from the weak hands to the strong hands. Yeah. Right. And, you know, ultimately, we got to remember that you can't sit there and enjoy stock like returns without the volatility that it comes with. Yeah, precisely. And everybody wants to have their cake and eat it, too. And it doesn't work that way. And it goes back to your point as to why portfolio managers utilize that bond exposure. Right. Is to buffer that. Yeah. I just wish more people would realize that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's to to buffer it and just get a little more squeeze of yield than it just sitting in a money market fund that's earning nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, So the last piece of this uh, that Charlie goes over is he asks the questions, why do high quality bonds provide downside protection? And he says, because they are not driven by the same fundamental factors as equities. Bonds are driven by interest rates as opposed to earnings growth and multiples. As such, the overall correlation between bonds and stocks is low at 0.2%. During down months for stocks, and this is key, that correlation drops to zero. And, you know, perfect correlation, Matt, means asset A moves up or down the same amount as asset B. And that's and that's a one correlation, right? Yep. It goes from one to negative one. Yep. So a zero correlation has no correlation at all. Yep. So I think, you know, that was just a good article to let people know, you know, why we own these things. Right. I, I, I'm happy you picked it. So he always he always has good stuff. So um, I'm sure we'll be talking about more th- things with Charlie uh, over the next several months. Excellent. 
financial planning topic of the week. This one's a little shorter, but it just comes from a series of tweets written by Jeff Levine uh, on Twitter regarding the new legislation being proposed, dubbed as the Secure Act 2.0. And Jeff talks about potential changes to retirement legislation possibly coming at some point later this year. Um, but I think it's important to realize that none of the legislation we're about to discuss has been passed just yet. I just wanted to give people a heads up of what is potentially coming in the near future because, you know, some people are going to need to change their plans a little bit, I think. Okay. So the House Ways and Means Committee unanimously passed a new round of retirement legislation dubbed Securing a Strong Retirement Act 2.0 which is being viewed as a follow-up to the SECURE Act of 2019 and, uh, like I said, is known now as 2.0. The key provisions that caught my my eye, Matt, were this. The RMD age would be pushed back again from 72 to 75, implemented gradually over the next decade. So at age 73 starts in 2022. It'd be pushed back to 74 starting in 2028 and age 75 starting in 2030. So again, RMD stands for Required Minimum Distribution. Um, When you're 72 years old, currently the government makes you take money out of your pre-tax retirement accounts so that they can get their tax revenue from it, right? Mm -hmm. And a couple years ago, this was age 70 and a half. They moved it back to 72 recently, and they're talking about pushing it back even further. So this would be a positive for most retirees, because if they don't need the money in retirement, you know, why take it out? Let it just keep compounding for you. Mm -hmm. So that could be a positive. The next thing is that the penalty for a missed RMD would be reduced from 50% to 25% and down to 10% for timely corrected missed required minimum distributions. So obviously right now, Matt, it's a pretty hefty fine for not taking your required minimum distribution. You get penalized 50% on the the amount that you do not take that you're supposed to take. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, Which I I don't think most people do. I think it's very one-off situations, but if you do, it's a hefty fine. So, you know, Getting that down to 25% is big and then, you know, down to 10% if you, you know, correct it in a timely manner, you know, I think, again, another positive thing for retirees. Next is that catch-up contributions for IRAs would become indexed for inflation with the introduction of an extra catch-up contribution for employer retirement plans for those aged 62 to 64, I would, like that. Which would boost catch-up contributions from $6,500 to $10,000 in 401k plans. Giddy up. So that's huge. Again, just allowing people to, as the definition implies, catch up for not contributing enough earlier in their working years. Sounds like this bill's getting down to brass tacks. Yeah, it is. It's going to be your, your phrase of the month. <laughs> Uh, Next is qualified student loan payments where 401k matching contributions are made for those who pay down student loans uh, would be formalized in the internal revenue code. So I think this would be a positive, Matt, um, because people would still get contributions to their retirement while they're paying down their student loans. So I think that this is this is definitely a positive. I love that idea. 
Um, and finally, um, a new office for retirement savings lost and found will be formed. Thank you. To Thank help, you. Yeah. To help retirement plan participants track down lost retirement accounts. So, you know, how many times have we talked with people? They're like, well, I used to work here and there and everywhere. And I, I just I don't know where any of that stuff is. Literally, there was, there was a client in our office three weeks ago that came in like, oh, I just found this account. Thirty nine thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. They don't even know they have. Didn't even know they had it. So that's that's interesting. It could be it could be very beneficial to people who have had several different jobs and, and making sure that they they have all their all of their accounts. Right. I, I love that, that idea. Yeah. So, again, uh, you know, this is only passed the House Ways and Means Committee and hasn't even been put to a vote yet in the House. Um, and there's no companion bill yet in the Senate. Um, so it could be a long time until this legislation is finalized and passed. And we all know how that stuff works with Congress, goes back and forth usually a couple times before they come to an agreement. So um, nothing that I think is going to happen in the next few months, but just be on the lookout that these changes could be coming um, soon. I just hope they don't raise taxes elsewhere to compensate for the pushing the RMD back. That's my only concern. <laughs> Well, right. And that's that's the other thing that I don't think is is formalized yet. But for, you know, every give, there's a take. That's right. right? So there's no such thing as a free lunch. They're not just going to do this and not, you know, raise revenue other places. Yeah, right? it'll probably be revenue neutral. I'm just wondering where the negative side is going to come from. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that won't be put out to the public until the very last minute <laughs> or you just on have like the, New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. type j- of thing. Just vote on the bill. Yeah, I haven't read it. Just vote on the bill. <laughs> yeah. The bill is 2,000 pages long. I just got it three hours ago. And I have to vote right now. Yeah, but it's good. It's crazy to me how that stuff works. Um, Anything else before we leave it there for the week, Matt? No, it's just we got Memorial Day around the the, uh, corner here. Looking forward to a, you know, a nice holiday weekend. And um, just want to throw out there, you know, we really appreciate um, all the veterans and active military that listen to our podcast um, I know you and I have just mad respect uh, for our veteran and active military members. So just thank you, all of you who are listening. Yeah, well said. Well said. Toughest job in the world, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so we'll leave it there for the week, and we will be back next week with episode number 100. That's going to be an interesting one, my friend. That's going to be a fun one. And Jenna, our marketing director, has some things planned for us, so I really don't know what that episode is going to look like. So Me it should neither. Be fun. I can't wait, though. Yeah, so we'll be back next week to uh, go over episode 100. It's kind of crazy to think about how we're already there. We're there. So, Well, listeners, have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have 
have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.